It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most election-distracting news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporter Graham Lawson and sub-editor Beth Ackley. Hello, both. Hello. Hi. Coming up on the show, we hear about a new theory on the function of dreams, a new estimate of the number of habitable exoplanets, which is perhaps great news for people who can't cope with the horror of this planet at the moment. And we have dream music from OPN. We also have an analysis of what it means now the US is officially out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And we have news of a way to mimic vaccination while we wait for a real vaccine for coronavirus. We've got a great show. Um, And just before we get into all that, we want to flag up that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to this link to newscientist.com slash pod20. Yes, that link will automatically give you the discount. You don't need a code. Just go to newscientist.com slash pod20 and you'll get the money off when you subscribe. Now, as Tiff says, we've worked hard this week to provide as much distraction as possible from, you know, things that are going on in a certain presidential election. Um, And with all that turmoil and antagonism in mind, we wanted to start by marking the 20th anniversary of the continuous occupancy of the International Space Station. Yeah, that anniversary was on November 2nd. To mark the occasion, here's a clip from a sing-along by international crew members from Russia, Germany and the US. They recorded this in space. That's uh, it's quite, quite mournful, isn't it? So that's a Russian bard song. Um, I won't try and pronounce the title in Russian, but the chorus means something like it's great that we are all gathered here today uh, it's written by yeah it's written by oleg mityev and uh yeah quite a mournful russian ballad thanks to uh, nasa astronaut ricky arnold who translated that chorus for me yeah what well, a great reminder of the power of international collaboration and now on to our first story nighttime hallucinations also known as dreams what is the function of dreams? It's a question that has been asked, you know, since time immemorial. They're so weird and intimate, they must mean something. Well, yeah, I always thought they must mean something. But I said that once to a sleep scientist. And he said, well, you'd think if they were that important, they'd be easier to remember, wouldn't you? And I couldn't really argue with that. (laughs) Yeah, but they can and probably are still important, even if we don't really understand them or always remember them. Yeah, yeah. And that's the subject of this week's cover story. Neuroscientist Eric Howell says that the hallucinatory nature of dreams is a way to free our brains from limits imposed by our daily waking experiences. I'm feeling a lot of limits on my daily waking experience. (laughs) (laughs) What's the story? So actually, this idea, his new hypothesis um, comes from from deep learning. So deep learning, the computer thing, the artificial intelligence 
thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the idea here is when you're training a computer on something like classifying images, you know, um, that thing where you give it a big data set and it has to identify all of the faces, say, or cars right. or whatever it is, um, playing a game, driving a car. It's all about fine tuning a huge network of connections so that the system can do that task accurately, pruning down these connections. And one problem computer scientists have found is that sometimes an AI gets trained so hard on this specific data set that it can't generalize to other similar data sets. So that problem is called overfitting. Okay, um, I've heard of that. And what they do to get around it is try to mix things up in the AI so that it can uh, learn more broadly. Yeah, exactly. So it's basically introduce a bit of chaos or difference um, so that it, it can learn more broadly, as you say. And in the jargon that they use, they call this domain randomization. Hmm. But what it what it's doing is is kind of inducing a hallucination into the network. So are they making the AI have weird dreams then? <laughs> I mean, something like that. Yeah. But the the point is that neuroscientists think maybe something similar is going on in the brain with overfitting. Yeah, I did wonder about this the other day because I was with my little girl and we saw this tiny dog in a handbag, you know, someone just carrying it along. And I pretended not to know what the thing was there. And I asked her, what is that? Because I was wondering if she'd be able to generalize from her, you know, picture book understanding of what a dog is, uh, but she could. So, but maybe an AI wouldn't have been up to that. <laughs> I experiment on my daughter all the time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, the overfitted brain hypothesis that Eric Coelho puts forward is this idea that animals, including us, are in danger of sort of fitting ourselves too well to the, the da our daily lives and the tasks that we do routinely. And then the problem is that then we can't generalize to other things like your daughter did so effectively. Um, so the idea is that dreams are the the domain randomization, to use the jargon, that stops this. Wow. So uh, is there any evidence for this? Not yet. They haven't actually <laughs> tested it yet. <laughs> but it does give us a new way to approach our understanding of dreams. Like, to give an example, it may be that if you have a dream about flying, that the practical use of that is actually maybe it helps you improve your balance in waking life when you're running. But I already know how to run. So, you know, <laughs> I don't need to have I don't need to improve my balance because I've learned how to run. And I I, I have a lot of uh, different kinds of flying dreams. Actually, I'm not going to start going on about my dreams because everyone will turn <laughs> off. But um, I feel they're more to do with my mental state. Uh, because at the moment, actually, I, I'm crashing. I literally crash out of the air in my flying dreams. You know, yeah, so. that, <laughs> I think maybe you need to talk to someone with a little bit more specialist <laughs> training than us. Um, um, but no, it is true. This is this is one exciting new hypothesis, and I, I think quite a compelling hypothesis. But obviously, down the centuries, there have been loads of different possible explanations for the function of dreams. Have you guys got any ideas what what you think dreams are for? Oh, mine are all definitely anxiety dreams, I'm afraid. <laughs> Much like Rowan. I am. Um, I once went to a sleep conference and heard a very famous sleep researcher saying, saying that he thought they were messages from alien civilizations. <laughs> but, uh, well, anyway, it's, he was jo he was actually just making a joke about how men in particular receive these broadcasts. But I'll just leave that to your imagination. <laughs> Uh, there's some evidence that dreams do function to process um, the events of our waking life, which is why they might be uh, kind of anxiety dreams. Um, I had a, I spent a night in a dream lab actually in, in Swansea, 
And uh, the researchers there actually found that the emotional strength of the experiences we have when we're awake is linked to the content of our dreams. So the intensity of our dreaming brainwaves is linked to the actual content, the images in our dreams. And so the idea there is that dreams act as a kind of overnight therapy to digest and soothe, soothe away the emotional impact of our lives. I think we could all do with some of that kind of therapy right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to end this segment with uh, another music clip. It's a track by the American musician One Tricks Point Never, or OPN for short. It's a, it's a really dreamy track called No Nightmares. And I was hoping to be able to say it was a lovely comment on the future of the American ele- electoral system. <laughs> but uh, we can't do that right now. But uh, enjoy the clip anyway. And thanks to Warp Records for sending it over. I'd only really heard his Uncut Gems score before, but I I really like this. It's it's so spacey. Yeah, it's got really nice Lynchian quality to it. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we give praise to some organism that we're feeling the love for. Beth, what have you got? Uh, I've got an octopus and a squid. Slightly cheating, but we'll allow two as they're both cephalopods. Go on. <laughs> Thank you. Well, as as you know, there are lots of cool things about octopuses' arms. Uh, they can regenerate and they can act autonomously from the octopus's brain, for instance. But one of the weirdest things about them is that they can use their arms to taste their prey. So they're essentially licking them. It's a bit like having eight very sophisticated tongues. Wow. Eight sophisticated tongues. I did not know that. The mind boggles. Yeah. So they, they do actually have an, a tongue-like organ in their mouths, which is called the radula, but it acts more like teeth instead. It, it's there to cut and scrape prey rather than tasting it. So is this brand new? Did we not know before about how octopuses taste? I mean, not taste <laughs> us. <laughs> so, so we knew that they could do this, but up until recently, we didn't really know how they use their arms to do this. But now researchers have looked at the suckers on the arms of California two-spot octopuses at a molecular level, and they found that they responded to different stimuli. Uh, some responded to touch, some responded to pressure, and some detected chemicals, so effectively tasting them. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is fascinating me or, or grossing me out a bit, um, <laughs> but there are other species that taste with odd body parts, as it were, like flies mm. taste with their feet, don't they? Uh, yeah, but uh, you might want to put that out of your mind and think about the lovely cephalopods instead of the flies <laughs> but um these tasting cells have sensors called chemotactile receptors that react to different chemicals meaning that the octopuses have a really nuanced and sophisticated palate that picks up on different flavors and odors i had a big octopus climb up my arm once with its with its arms you know <laughs> sticking up me so i guess it was tasting my arm when it did that yeah i, I guess so i'm, I'm weirdly <laughs> jealous of that what was that like uh, it was well. It was horrible. Actually, it was a horrible memory. Cause, <laughs> well, what happened was um, I was with a friend who who pulled it out and, and killed it with a spike in its head, and oh then we literally ate it raw um, on the beach. <laughs> uh, and I just remember chewing its its tentacle up. Oh like, my god! Just cut it up and ate it, and uh, yeah, it was we- it was weird and horrible. So you know and... how octopus taste. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know how an actual, like, it was still basically oh, moving around. Uh, it was, yeah, I don't, yeah, it's a bad memory. I don't, I try not to eat cephalopods anymore. 
Yeah, I wish I hadn't asked, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so now we have a much better understanding of how, through the sensory systems in their arms, octopuses can figure out if food is good to eat. And your octopus, shortly before its tragic demise, probably figured out that you weren't a good meal. (laughs) Yeah. but it's particularly helpful, uh, given that they, they often hunt blindly by just shoving their arms into holes and crevices, and they just have a feel around for prey. Okay, so what was the squid? Oh, I, I just have to mention that um, paleontologists have found evidence of a squid-like creature that lived 68 million years ago that was the shape of a giant paperclip. <laughs> That's the kind of story we all need this week, I think. <laughs> Time out, we'd like to tell you about an incredibly important one-day virtual event we're holding about the future of food and agriculture. On Saturday, the 28th of November, find out how science and technology are tackling hunger and obesity and safeguarding the future of our planet. We'll have talks, demonstrations, and interactive sessions, and a lineup including the likes of Neil Stevens, who studies the potential impact of lab-grown meat, and Tilly Collins, who's making the case for loading up our plates with edible insects. Yum, yum. Uh, Whether it's sustainable diets, robot farming, hacking your taste buds or gene editing livestock, we've got everything you need to know about the future of food. The live event is on Saturday the 28th of November from 10 until 5 and all the talks will be available to watch again for six months after. To book your ticket, visit newscientist.com slash events. Next up, we've talked before on the show about what's been called the greatest mystery in astronomy. FRBs! (laughs) FRBs or fast radio bursts. Yep, these are powerful blasts of radio waves that last just a few milliseconds. And when you say powerful blasts, you have to emphasize really just how powerful they are. Yeah, they they last just, uh, well, far less than a second, just a few milliseconds. But in that time, they release as much energy as the sun does in a day. And the big mystery has been, we just don't know what causes them. Right. But now, uh, in typical 2020 uh, style, we found the source of a fast radio burst uh, pinpointed for the first time, and it comes from inside our galaxy. Oh, no. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm guessing it's not aliens, or we may have started the show with that. Uh, Yeah, it's not an alien, you know, transmitting its dream to Graham. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The source is is a magnetar, which is a neutron star with an incredibly powerful magnetic field. So neutron stars are super exotic objects. They're really small, right? Basically like a a little ball of neutrons, but the size of a a small city, I guess not that small, Um, (laughs) but really, really incredibly dense. So I think I've heard a factoid that like a teaspoonful of neutron star um, would weigh about a billion tons. Yeah, you'd have to have a really strong arm to lift up that teaspoon. <laughs> and and they also have really strong magnetic fields. And the interaction of extreme magnetic field and the stuff that orbits the star is what can produce the, the FRB, the fast radio burst, right? Yeah, um, but until now, that's been theoretical. And that's because they're so brief and so distant that we only thought they came from magnetars. But now astronomers have been able to pin down one quite close, only about 30,000 light years away, whereas the others that we've been observing are sort of millions to billions of light years away. So one astronomer we spoke to said it's bridging the gap between activity in our own galaxy and these strange events from many light years away, which is a pretty cool way of thinking about it. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, And while we're on space, there's some exoplanet news this week that I also have to tell you about. 
Yeah, do go on. I think everyone's keen to learn about what uh, other planets might be like at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, this is data from the Kepler Space Telescope, which is searching for rocky planets that are within the ha- habitable zone of stars, uh, you know, about the same size of, as our sun. Um, and the habitable zone is that distance from a star where it isn't too hot and it isn't too cold for liquid water to exist. Yeah, the the so-called Goldilocks zone. Yeah, Uh, So astronomers have analysed over 4,000 exoplanet candidates and looked at their frequency around these sun-like stars and simulated how Earth-like planets should be distributed across the Milky Way. And they've concluded there are loads more than we previously thought. Loads more? Yeah, 5 billion. Wait, wait, 5 billion potentially Goldilocks Earth-like planets in our galaxy. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Wow. Uh, are, they, are they accepting uh, visa applications from Earth yet? <laughs> uh, well, let's, it's worth finding out. Um, but whether any of them have life on them, uh, of course, is another question. Uh, and when, whether any of that is even intelligent life, you know, that's an even further along question to answer, even harder to answer. But, you know, the encouraging signs are we're getting there. Astronomy is getting towards those sorts of questions. I like to think that some of these planets might be sort of the planetary equivalent of Canada. <laughs> place where everyone escapes to. Oh, oh I thought Canada. you were going to be mean about Canada for a moment. But yeah. <laughs> and now it's time for climate hope or doom. We're looking at what will happen if it ends up being President Biden in the White House, which would be great for the climate. But if he ends up with a hostile Senate, that might make things difficult for him to pass any Green New Deal. And of course, on top of that, we have the disappointing news that the US has now officially withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, um, President Trump said in 2017 that he's pulling the US out of the agreement, uh, which was signed but not ratified by President Obama. But just because of the rules of giving notice and the timings uh, that you have to give to the UN, uh, the official withdrawal from the accord only happened on Wednesday. This makes the US the first country in the world to withdraw. Even President Bolsonaro of Brazil, who threatened to withdraw, ultimately changed his mind. The worry, of course, is that without the US on board, other countries will feel permitted to slow down their decarbonization, which already is too slow. Yeah, and even with a Biden presidency, we've already lost a lot of time and leadership from the US. So we have to hope that the momentum from East Asia will take over and make up for what we've lost with that. And the good news, it's actually amazing news that South Korea, Japan and China have all now made zero carbon pledges. And the EU has got this um, green deal with investment pledged of over a trillion euros. So to some extent, fortunately, this is happening without US leadership, because even without the official withdrawal from Paris, there hasn't been any leadership on meaningful um, measures to address climate change coming from the White House in the last few years. That's right. Well, there's been negative leadership, really, because they, you know, they've been supporting coal and other fossil fuels. But there is some hope to cling to because the US is not has not been doing nothing. There's there's a group called America's Pledge, which is a movement to make sure the US does still meet its Paris targets, even though the country's out of the agreement. So how is it going to do that? So the pledge is like thousands of representatives of US cities and states and tribal nations and businesses and things like that. They've pledged to accelerate local climate action. 
And together, they they, go, they cover all 50 states. They represent nearly two-thirds of the U.S. economy and more than half of the country's emissions. Right, because if you look at California on its own, it's like the world's fifth biggest economy ahead of the U.K. in sixth place, right? Yeah, um, and California's targeting reducing its greenhouse gas emissions to 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. Uh, and 11 states in total have made legally binding commitments to get to zero carbon by 2050. So it is not easy. It's going to be hard, even harder uh, without a federal command from the top. But, you know, there is this movement. Yeah, I saw a joint statement from the UK, uh, Italy, France and Chile yesterday saying the countries note with regret that the US has now formally withdrawn from Paris Agreement. And those countries say they're committed to working with all US stakeholders to accelerate climate action. Yeah, so exactly. The rest of the world can work with US stakeholders, uh, even if it can't work with the White House. And that's the climate hope that we have to build on. Now, turning as we must to coronavirus, um, and here in England, we have just entered a second period of lockdown. We all hope there will be a vaccine as soon as possible will help life return to some semblance of normality. Graham, you've got a really intriguing story about what we could do in the meantime while we wait for the vaccine. Yeah, so people on the front line are confident that we will get a vaccine sooner or later, but they're saying later rather than sooner, um, because getting vaccines through clinical trials is long and difficult at the best of times. And these are not the best of times. I mean, they're maybe not the worst of times, but anyway, and there are also problems with manufacturing and distributing a vaccine. So there's this increasing talk of a thing called a bridge to a vaccine. So what does that mean exactly? Well, really, it's a way of mimicking vaccination, at least temporarily, to kind of tide us over until the real thing arrives. And the way to do that, we think, is by using the blood of people who've had COVID-19 and recovered. Because this blood, or more accurately, their plasma, which is the liquid fraction of blood, contains antibodies, which help them to fight off the virus and could help other people do so too. So this is the plasma therapy or convalescent plasma that we've been hearing so much about. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of a therapy for people who are already ill with the virus. But the goal here is to use it as a prophylactic to stop people catching the virus in the first place. Now, that's sometimes known as a passive vaccination. So rather than stimulating somebody's immune system to make antibodies, you borrow antibodies from somebody else. I'm getting flashbacks to the vampire story from Halloween here with blood. (laughs) blood. Uh, Are we any closer to knowing this is going to work, though, Graham? I mean, there have been some ups and downs. So anyway, let's start at the beginning. The entry level is called convalescent plasma, which is where blood plasma removed from a recovered patient is literally siphoned out of their bloodstream and infused straight into somebody else's. And this technique's been around for about 100 years and it has a pretty good track record of curing and preventing infectious diseases. So there are some high hopes. There are about 50 clinical trials of convalescent plasma in progress, mostly as a therapy, but some testing it as a passive vaccine too. Admittedly, the first one to report its results found no effect, but that was a therapy trial using quite weak plasma. So we don't yet know about prevention. Okay, so that's the the sort of basic entry level. What's the, the next level usage? So level two is this thing called hyperimmune globulin which is essentially turbocharged convalescent plasma. It's plasma that's been pooled and purified and concentrated. Now, this is already used against numerous conditions, including flu and other respiratory viruses. And there are four experimental hyperimmune globulins in clinical trials right now. Again, we're going to have to wait and see, but not for long, because the results should be out before the end of the year. 
And I get the feeling there's yet another level. You guessed it, right. Level three (laughs) is monoclonal antibodies. Now, in principle, these work the same as the other two, but the production method is different. The antibodies are not extracted directly from plasma. They're produced by genetically modified cells in culture. So right now there are two leading contenders for COVID-19. And one of them was made very famous by a certain US president. You may recall that when he was in hospital with COVID-19, he received an experimental drug, which he called Regeneron. Now, the drug isn't actually called Regeneron. That's the name of the company that makes it. But anyway, it's a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies. And according to Trump, it cured him instantly. It was like unbelievable, he said. I felt good immediately. Uh, Amazingly, that's probably fake news because he was also on steroids, which are known to induce euphoria. Anyway, but Regeneron and its main rival in this field, which is Eli Lilly, have both got monoclonal antibodies in clinical trials as a therapy and a cure, and both have revealed some pretty positive interim results. So what are we waiting for? Let's roll them out. Well, yeah, I mean, hold your horses. Even if things work out, there are still some pretty major roadblocks. One is cost. Uh, monoclonal antibodies in particular eye-wateringly expensive. Another is that convalescent plasma and hyperimmune globulins require a lot of plasma, which means a lot of volunteer donors. But anyway, this is an opportunity because if you have recovered from COVID-19 and you want to give something back, you can. You can donate plasma. It's just as easy as donating blood. And you could really help us get out of this mess. You could save people's lives. We'll put some links into the podcast page about how you can do that. That's all for this week. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Graham and Beth, and thanks to you for listening. One other thing to mention in this week's mag, we've got a fascinating feature about the forgotten codes that underpin much of the software that runs our lives. Also, remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to this link, newscientist.com slash pod 20. And in the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Until next time, take care, goodbye, and let's play out with a clip from that Russian song on togetherness and cooperation again. This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.